was actually Thorpey that tapped me on the shoulder and said, Bill, are you going to get up and swim or what? He actually shook me out of my meditative state. And, and then initially I was like, holy crap, I'm too relaxed. And uh, then I, I looked up at the crowd and then I was just like, boom, I was on. Gold medal chance for the Australians here. And the crowd sensing it as they walk onto the pool deck. The 4x200m freestyle relay final at the 2000 Sydney Olympics was expected to be an Australian victory. The Australians just need to keep a level head here, make sure their changeovers are safe and they should come up trumps. The team of Ian Thorpe, Michael Klim, Todd Pearson and this week's guest, Bill Kirby, was inarguably the best in the world and the 2000 Sydney Olympics was earmarked as a mighty transition for Australian swimming. The country's last Olympic outing in Atlanta, 1996, was its worst. Just two gold medals and an overall sense of mediocrity was felt amongst the Australian swimming community. In 96, we got absolutely smashed. Um, I think we won a gold medal with Susie and Kieran on the very last day. You know, that was it. Two gold medals, you know. We're never going to beat the Americans. Not a, mate, stop singing from this songbook. It's not going to happen. But between 1996 and where Bill was in 2000, on the biggest stage of his career, things had changed. Americans in five, Goldblatt, Davis, Watch and Keller. Hard to see them matching it with the Australians. Expectations were astronomical, with anything less than a resounding victory, viewed as not just a loss on the day, but a failure for Australian swimming as a whole. The atmosphere was immense, and Bill, walking the pool deck to the roar of 18,000 people, was feeling it. In the, in the ready room, I was calm and I was confident. Um, walking out and hearing the crowd, I was really pooping it a little bit. I started to feel myself, you know, like almost I wanted to swim first or second because I felt that I couldn't maintain that level of adrenaline. Just trying to get my heart rate down and to try and get the cortisols or the adrenaline just really down so I could actually be ready to peak. In lane three, represented by Andrea Bacari. I knew I couldn't perform um, if I didn't do something. How can you bring yourself back? What can you do to wrestle your body and mind to a condition suited for success? I actually had to sit down after we, after Thorpey dove off, I sat down and had to visualise myself surfing in Margaret River. That's where I was. I was in North Point. For Bill, Margaret River holds an enormous significance. To understand that significance, and understand how Bill got to where we saw him in 2000. We have to step back and revisit that spot on the Margaret River where Bill went to escape after failing to qualify for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics.
was living in Margaret River in a caravan, living on my own probably five, six days a week. So I had a lot of time to myself. And I was down there actually during Atlanta Olympics and I wanted to see my teammates race. And there was one guy in the caravan park and he had the only TV in the whole caravan park. So I thought, oh, I want to go and head over to his place and see if I can watch a bit of the um, Atlanta Games because the swimming was starting, I, I knew that. And I, I knocked on the door and he opened up and um, he was watching something else like, you know, Neighbours or something, I don't know, something really benign. And I, I asked him, I said, oh, look, Atlanta Olympics are on, you know, I'm pretty, pretty keen to see it. And he goes, I'm not watching that crap, mate. <laughs> So why weren't you there in Atlanta? Can you tell us what happened? I actually had a really poor meet in 95. They had a warm-up meet for um, Atlanta. And I went there feeling fit and swam really poorly and couldn't understand why. Came back and then found out I, I, I was sick and um, glandular fever was something that you, you know, that you can get a blood test for, so it was pretty easy to find. Then I was told a couple of weeks later that I was I was all good, you know, um, antibodies were there and carry on training. So I've, I was a member of the Australian swimming team for literally the previous three years, like uh, going into it. So I was really hopeful. Um, and then the more and more I trained, um, the more I got just skinnier and, and sicker. And it got to the point where initially I'd trained for a couple of weeks and then on a Saturday or a Friday night, I'd start throwing up and just couldn't stop throwing up. Every week it would happen and then it got to about Thursday and I'd start throwing up just out of fatigue. Before the trials for the um, Atlanta Games, I was in a really, really low point. I was weighing about 67, 68 kilos. Um, most of my competitors are weighing about 80 to 100. And um, I was just couldn't understand what the hell was actually wrong with me. I had lots of tests done, um, endoscopies and so forth. And I started to feel so bad that I wanted to sort of give up on, I really wanted to give up on, on, on the whole thing. It got to a point where I, I wouldn't say I was, um, you know, contemplating suicide, but I, I probably wasn't a few, a few, a few paces off that because my life dream, everything I'd worked towards was just falling apart when I could almost touch it. Interestingly, uh, a CEO of Swimming WA basically saw me struggling and pulled me aside and he, he encouraged me to see a naturopath, which I kind of scoffed at at the time I was a science student. <laughs> and um, I just thought, no, I, I don't really buy into that. And he said, look, I'll pay for it. You go um, and you got to promise me that you do everything that she says. Give it two weeks, tell me how you feel. She did some little funny little tests on me. Measured some waves of something I was holding and things like that and took a little sample of my blood. And what got me was she showed me my red blood cells under a microscope live. And being a science student, I knew what they were supposed to look like. And what she showed me was anything other than a healthy looking red, red blood cell. 
were just deformed and looked terrible. Uh, knowing that they carry the oxygen and they need to be healthy to swim fast and I just went wow holy moly um, and I followed her regime which was really a vegan diet no no gluten and, and it was really really restrictive but plus taking these natural type supplements um, and I still took it for the first week just thinking this is just a load of dog wash I'll just but I'll do it I'll do it properly and give it a chance and by the second week I went from feeling probably the worst I've ever felt in my life and hating life and uh, not wanting to be a part of it to getting little, glim you know, little glimpses of energy back and some health back. And I hadn't thrown up for a couple of weeks and I uh, started to get a little bit of hope back. So that all occurred about, about a month out from the uh, Olympic trials. But by the time I was there, I, you know, I, I was still underweight, I was 69 kilos. Um, I gave myself a chance in the in the 200 freestyle. Um, they they take the top six, and I was coming about third or fourth with 10 meters to go, and I just just collapsed in the last 10 meters. And Glenn Hausman swam past me and touched the wall, and I came seventh. The morning and the I think the emotion of trying to get through to the final. Um, got me to the point where actually I, I had lunch uh, before the finals and actually threw that up and just <laughs> had a bit of a repeat where I just felt really, really flat again. It's always one of the things that I've admired most about athletes um, is that in some ways it's so much more difficult than other pursuits because you have all of this lead up time, but then when it comes down to it, you have to be ready on the day at the right time, at the right moment. And so much has been invested in something that is so susceptible to the variability of life, whether you're feeling sick, whether you're not quite at your peak, whether something emotionally has happened to you at that particular week or month that is playing on your mind, all of it can be swiped away or, or compromised by things that are completely outside of your control. When you get to that point and, and you come seventh and you're so close even after all of the work that you've put into it, how do you build yourself up again from that moment? How, how do you start to say, okay, this is one moment in my career, but this isn't the defining moment in my career. I need to start rebuilding. How do you, how do, you do that? Um, well, I think to be really open, I, once I finished seventh and I knew I wasn't gonna be in the Olympic team, that was it, I thought I was done. I thought, you know what, I'm, this sports made me feel so sick and I put it down to the sport and, and the effort and how hard I was pushing my body that's not that healthy. That experience taught me that the most important thing in my life was being well. So I actually did um, hang up my bathers and uh, just focused on my health. I was on this really strict diet still. Um, I, I took the supplements, I stopped training, I just surfed. So I think that the that the diet healed my gut. My gut was so un unwell, um, and it was from antibiotics, from being sick, anti-inflammatories from having sore shoulders. The surfing that I was doing was really nourishing my soul. I think after that experience, um, and then feeling really well and having some real energy back in my life and putting some weight back on, 
I came back to Perth. I actually ran out of money, so I had to come back to Perth to uh, get it get back into working. And uh, my swimming coach just sort of sold me the car. You know, he said, the Australian team's going to Sweden in about six months. Why don't you get fit and try and, and try and make it? Who was your swimming coach at that time? Uh, Bernie Mulroy. Yeah, he was a legend. Yeah. Tell me about Bernie a little bit, because it seems to me that there's more of a story there. Bernie was obviously looking out for you, right? Because he must have seen you go away. He must have seen you try and get yourself better. He was probably, I imagine, somewhat a part of your life when you didn't get into the Atlanta team. Tell me a little bit about what he saw in you and, and how he managed to get you back in a, a competitive mindset after essentially saying, that's me done. Um, oh, look, I'd met Bernie when I was about 12. I was lucky. I was in a squad that he coached that had a whole bunch of swimming champions, basically the who's who of swimming in Perth. Brooksy was there. Uh, Shelley Taylor-Smith, who was a world champion marathon swimmer. Uh, we had uh, Paul Lee, Dean Peters, who was the world, sorry, the Australian, actually, and the world surf life saving swimming champion. We had all these pretty, you know, inspiring athletes there. So um, I just wanted to be like them. And, and Bernie could, I guess, could see that I wanted to work hard. And I'm sure that when I told him I'd had enough, he probably thought, mate, this guy's only, you know, 20 years of age. There's just no way he's done. We need to get him back. That, that trip to Sweden was a turning point for you, wasn't it? Because not only did it act, I suppose, as a, um, a natural endpoint to a really tough road uh, of recovery and training again, but it was also the first time that I understand you won a gold medal. And it was with the 4 by 200 metre freestyle team uh, that included at the time Michael Klim, Grant Hackett and Matthew Dunn. Um, that's, uh, that's a pretty extraordinary group of names to begin with. But then obviously that became a historic event for you later down the track as well. What was it like in 1997 after everything that you'd been through the year and a half before to get to that point? Yeah, um, interestingly, um, I kind of, the actual trials for that team, I just had no needs at all. Um, because I actually didn't really, uh, I didn't really care if I was going to make it or not for some reason. I just, I don't know, maybe I just thought I could make it. I just didn't really care. And when I got there, I was just enjoying it. And there was a pivotal moment at that meet. Don Talbot was the head coach. I used to really hate him. I used to think he was just a really nasty piece of work. I had no respect for him. Um, and a lot of that was born out of complete ignorance. But he sat me down at, um, at the end of the warm-up pool in between heats and finals. And he just was watching me. And he walks over and he taps me on the shoulder. He goes, Bill, how you going? I said, yeah, good. I was quite surprised he was even talking to me a little bit and not telling me off like he normally did. And um, he goes, I've just been watching you, mate. And I, I don't think that you think that, that you can win here or that you're that competitive. That, you know, like I've got a feeling that you actually come on these team trips and you think your job's done making the Australian team. You always see to have a good time and to participate. And no one had challenged me like that before. And, uh, but essentially after that conversation, I was like, holy crap, I've been spending my career trying to get here. I haven't been spending my whole career trying to get here and actually do something. So that was before one of my events. And I ended up um, in the marshing area sitting next to 
the guy that beat Kieran Perkins at the World Champs. And he's about almost seven foot tall. And I'm sitting down on the seats in the marshing area and he puts his hand on his, on his knee, which is about a foot taller than my knee. And then he puts his hand on my knee and starts laughing about how short I am. <laughs> and that was another moment because I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat you, buddy. I don't care. <laughs> and, um, and I think in showing Don Talbot that I met business, he put me on that four by two, which then gave me the hope of being a part of that in Sydney. So much of your battle up until that point had been getting back into the Australian team. You'd already been at a point where that was such a hurdle, even on its own, that maybe looking beyond that really hadn't been something that you could psychologically take on until you were in that pool with Don taking notice of you. But that obviously was a turning point for you because from there, it wasn't a smooth run, but it was a consistently successful run in the sense that you didn't qualify for the 98 World Championship, but you did qualify for the 98 Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur. And I'm interested in, in sort of that up and down because to me, having that success in 1997 and then getting to the World Championship 1998 moment and not getting in, maybe someone with less psychological resilience might say, okay, well, I managed to push to 97, but I'm, I'm still not at a level where I can be consistent here. Maybe I was right the first time around. Maybe I need to step away. But you managed to push on later that year and make the Commonwealth Games. What was happening in your head at that stage? I learned another lesson, I guess. Um, the 98 World Championship Trials. And I was studying physiotherapy at that stage. And I decided uh, I'm going to defer and I'm just going to swim. By the time I got to 98 trials for the, for the Worlds, I had nothing else in my life. I was training the house down. I, you know, you'd get up at five o'clock, go to the pool by 5.30 or quarter past five to stretch, uh, jump in the water at 5.30, swim between six to eight k's, hop out, and then I would, in Perth back then, I would go surfing. Then I'd go to the gym, um, go to uni if I, if I was studying then, and then go back to the pool in the afternoon, stretch and swim, do six to eight k, and, and go to bed and do it again the next day. When it got to actually the race day, um, I think I was just too tense. And because I had nothing else in my life, I put way too much pressure on myself. I actually finished fifth in the Tour de Free and they can take the top six. Uh, but Don Talbot and I's relationship was still a bit tenuous and he wanted to teach me a lesson and say, mate, you're not coming. I know it's in Perth and you'd love to be in front of your home crowd, but I'm not, I'm, I'm not gonna take it. So um, that made me really angry um, and really hungry. Um, I decided to go to Canberra uh, we'll try to get into, into the issue of sport and they did take me, which was good. When you actually did get to the AIS and you were around those people, do you think you fell into that pretty quickly or did it take quite an adjustment to get yourself into that headspace? Uh, look, it probably took a month and then I got it. I got it. And um, I, mean, I thought I was a professional athlete until I started training with Michael Clem and Popoff and I, you know, and Patria Thomas, like all these great athletes. And I remember when I, the first week I was there, I, I trained in the morning and then I had breakfast with everyone and then we went back to our rooms and I went to go and hang out and everyone went to bed. Everyone was asleep. So how boring, what's everyone doing? Having a day sleep was never part of my training regime. And then after I asked, what are you doing? And they're like, Bill, if you want to be ready for this afternoon's practice, you've got to recover. So you have to learn how to sleep. And then 
you know, I got more lessons along the way. You know, um, one of the things um, was, you know, on a Saturday night we would go out as a whole swim team and sometimes we'd go out with the wrestlers or we'd go out with the rollers or we'd go out with the netball girls if the you know not 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 me so much because I was I was with my wife then but um, you know it was party time in Canberra on a Saturday night but the best swimmers the ones that were really professional they would go out and have a good time and be home by 10 30. I had to learn how to do that I had to learn to say um, you know I actually I actually tried a season where I said I'm not going to drink I'm not going to have a beer or a wine and I swam terribly and it was because I never switched off. And then I watched these guys and they all had a beer and they all had a wine, but they wouldn't have enough to affect their recovery. They'd have enough to switch off and have a good time. So I learned a lot about balance uh, and making every decision in the moment to be the one that's gonna get you to where you wanna be. What a group of people to be hanging out with as well. Tell me a little bit about the um, the influence that some of those people had on you because I, I guess maybe I'll start with your relationship with Michael Quinn because not only was he there at the uh, the success in '97, uh, um, but he then went on to form I, I guess a a, a pillar of um, uh, the team that would lead to uh, in, incredible Australian success uh, with you and Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett. Um, up until then, what was it like in the early days with Michael and you and your relationship, given that background? Oh, look, he's a really easy guy to like. He's a really uh, fun guy to hang out with. He's got a good sense of humour. And he's just a complete animal to train with. You know, I went over to Canberra thinking that no one trained harder than me. And then I met him. And I could learn something from all of those guys. Um, but Clemmy was, uh, yeah, he's just, and he is a very infectious positive guy and he really probably was a was the glue that kept a lot of the boys together in terms of you know and he'd bring you along for his ride you know i did some training camps with him because we both like to go surfing um up on the gold coast and having lived in canberra for four years you know that if you get a chance to leave canberra you probably take it uh just for a bit of a little bit of sunshine and beach right so we were training on the Gold Coast with Dennis Cottrell, who trained, um, previously trained uh, Daniel Kowalski, but was training Grant Hackett then. And, and Thorpey flew up as well, you know, so he, he flew up from his home pool at SOPAC. So there we are just doing a bit of training, just me, Clemmy, Grant and Thorpey and this Japanese 1500 metre champion. And um, I think that week, <laughs> that week just blew me away with how hard those guys, they just hate losing. So every single training set was like, I don't know, you know, a different level of pain. You would have matched them though, I imagine, uh, once they set that standard, because uh, the same guy that came back after the 1996 disappointment uh, and worked himself to the ground, maybe imperfectly without the right guidance, but had the resilience to do that, was still the same guy who was there on the Gold Coast, right? And that was a, a feature of all of the work from there, wasn't it? It was that mental toughness to say that maybe I don't have the exact techniques that are going to get me there, but I know that I have the resilience to do it if someone shows me. And having the humility to accept that, that there are other people to learn from and there are better ways to do things. Where did that come from? Was that inherent to you or was that something that you, you learned from the ups and downs along the way? Um, yeah, look, that's the, that's the golden question. You know, how much of that innate 
personality is programmed. You know, I'm a father with three kids and they're all completely different. And I think as a parent, you can modify or you can encourage, but you kind of are who you are in some ways. I definitely remember my dad talking in my ear um, about, mate, if you visualise it enough and you believe in yourself, you, you can do it, you can do anything. And um, he must have said that to me a hundred times as a young kid. Um, and you start to believe it, you know. Um, perhaps that was it. You know, I'd love to know the real answer of that, but I'll definitely use it in my coaching and in my parenting. This week's episode of The Risk Equation is brought to you by Altrop Coffee. Altrop is an online coffee marketplace that's helping support local Melbourne businesses and creating a sustainable, fair and stress-free coffee buying experience. All of Altrop's coffees are roasted, ground, packaged and shipped from Melbourne directly to your door. And the prices are a lot lower than you might expect as well. Altrop prices start from just $15 a bag. And that $15 bag is coming from a small, local and sustainable Melbourne roaster instead of your giant supermarket brands. Altrop have set up a 10% discount code exclusive to listeners of The Risk Equation. That code is RISK, like the name of the show. That's code RISK for 10% off at altrop.com.au. And thanks again to Altrop for sponsoring this week's episode. We really appreciate it. Now back to the show. next level um you know he was a phenomenal kid i think the hardest part for him was um there's no doubt that there was people like myself that were initially just thrown back you know i'm jealous like this guy hasn't this guy hasn't even run it you know in terms of swimming journeys he's, he hasn't even run a lap around the block yet and he's already world champ like what the hell you know he had this super freak and he hated being called a freak thorpe hated it you know because being called a freak for him didn't really um, acknowledge how hard he worked, which is fair enough because he was a hard worker. He was a, not only was he physically amazing, he was a, an amazing trainer as well. So there was a part of me that thought that he didn't respect the amount of work that some of us older guys that, you know, probably weren't so physically well formed as what he is. He's just a specimen. How hard we worked to get to where we were and he just made it look so easy. Um, uh, he was one of the most exciting guys to watch. Um, in hindsight, he was um, just, you know, for what he had to go through, just an incredible man. Just a, um, He was so humble for how bloody amazing he was. It was incredible. One of the things that I really admire about the group that was forming at that time is that humility featured in all of you to a certain degree, I think. It's obviously hard looking from the outside uh, in, but it seems to me that you know 
you at that time had gone through some significant ups and downs and had pushed yourself diligently to get to the point where you deserved to be there and were performing at the level that was required to be there. But then it takes a huge amount of humility, I think, to see someone like an Ian Thorpe coming in, like you say, fairly untested, but with immense success. And then to put the ego to one side and say, no, the way that we're going to succeed is by bonding here, by taking advantage of all of our skills, my maturity and experience, perhaps, or Klim's hard work and his ability to sort of bring people along with him and Ian Thorpe's inherent talent at that point in time and, and make something magical out of that. That takes big people to be able to step aside from themselves for a second and say, wait, no, the bigger picture is here and, and I can see it. Did coaches play a big role in that or was that just a part of your dynamic as a group that you were able to see past some of those other things you've alluded to and make success from it all? Yeah, so this one I can answer pretty easily. I think um, Don Talbot had an amazing vision. He was relentless with his vision. In 93, he said to the Australian team, we're going to be the best swimming team in the whole world. And we were coming about 10th. You know, I sat in the room going, are you dreaming? <laughs> this ain't going to happen. You know, Karen was in the room after winning a gold medal in Barcelona going, mate, it's not going to happen. He said the same thing in 93, 94, 95, 96, kept saying it. In 96, we got absolutely smashed. Um, I think we won a gold medal with Susie and Kieran on the very last day. You know, that was it. Two gold medals, you know. We're never going to beat the Americans. Not a, mate, stop singing from this songbook. It's not going to happen. And then sort of 97, 98, we get a little bit of progress. And I reckon half the team thought, you know what? Don, we can do this. You know, I was one of those outliers. I thought there, there is no team in swimming. And then I witnessed it firsthand in 99, where I reckon 70% of the team believed in Don Talbot. This vision of being the best swim team in the world. And I, was, I became one of the 70% quite late on, to be really truthful to you. He would engineer us to sit down and talk together. And we had, we had Kieran Perkins was a, a very, very awesome swimmer. He was very focused. Um, in the early days, Kieran was really about Kieran succeeding, um, and rightly so. And that was the culture. But by 2000, Kieran was part of that 80%, 90%. 95% by 2000, where he sat at a table with Grant Hackett on it. And I was sitting on that same table, helping Grant Hackett get his head together to perform in Sydney. It wasn't about winning yourself, it was about how can we support our teammates to win, because the team wanted to outdo the Americans. Because we we're all selfish buggers in sport. Uh, particularly swimming, we're all pretty self-centered and um, we're all in it for ourselves. But what they taught us was that if we're in it for the team, we'll achieve more individually. And that's that was such a seismic shift and it would not have happened without Don Talbot. What must have been a turning point for you 
after the introduction of that culture and, and the work that had gone into that point in time, which was the 1999 Pan Pacific Swimming Championships, uh, where you broke the world record. What did it feel like uh, to, to win that event and to break the world record? Looking back at your experience in 96 and everything that had led up to that point, what, what was it like to, to see that success, to feel that success with that group of people? Yeah, it's um, super motivating. It was pretty awesome to be around. I mean, those guys were becoming household names too. So, um, but, you know, I guess that part of it was probably wasn't as big a deal because they were just my training mates, you know, for most, most of the time. But I think we really felt that, and I certainly saw that um, on the back of Kieran Perkins' ability to raise the profile of our sport and Susie's and Sam, and Sam Riley's to maintain this profile, those three boys particularly, you know, really delivered us into that golden era of swimming and it was special. Like people really loved watching it because of those personalities. And so to be a part of that was pretty awesome. Um, I, I remember feeling a little bit in, insignificant and one day Saskia and I went, went up to the, went up to the snow and we were in Cooma or Jindabyne or somewhere and at a cafe coming you know, out of Canberra there, as you've probably done before. And I'm reading the paper doing the crossword. And one of the questions was was about a week out from that world world record relay swim was um, who was the fourth swimmer with Michael Clean, Grant Hackett, and Ian Thorpe that that broke the record in the four way hundred freestyle relay at the recent Banfat Games? And I was like, I can finally answer one. <laughs> but also also knowing that. Um, a huge percentage of people that did that crossword were never going to have a clue. <laughs> In some ways, the personal satisfaction of knowing what you'd been through up until that point, the fact that you'd almost given it away, you'd, you'd reached a point that was low enough that not only were you thinking about giving away the sport, but in, in some ways you're seriously questioning what you're going to do with the rest of your life, if you had a life. To be in that position where not only have you broken the world record in a historic fashion for Australian swimming, given its history up until that point, but you're on the verge of making the Olympic team which had been what you'd missed out on four years before. And not only were you gonna make the Olympic team, but you're gonna make the Olympic team at one of the most historic moments in Australian swimming um, ever. That, that must have been immensely personally satisfying to you uh, as you're on the cusp of Sydney in 2000. It was huge relief, obviously. The first step is to make the you know the top four finishers, like the people that finish the top four in those relay events, in the in the hundred free or the two hundred free, are uh, categorically have to go. And you'll spend, um, and I spend every. Once I started getting reasonably good at swimming, I mean, people wouldn't ask, "Oh, are you going to go to the um, Commonwealth Games, Bill?" It'd be, "Oh, so you're a swimmer? Are you going to go to Sydney?" You walk out in the opening ceremony at the Sydney Olympics, a historic moment for this country and certainly a, an extraordinarily memorable one for you and the rest of the team. Um, what was it like to be out on the floor that night, uh, I guess in, in some ways celebrating the achievement of, of getting to the Olympics, 
but then doing it at home too, which must have been doubly special, I imagine. I was not going to miss it for the world. I was in the, I was on night three. I was I was in the optional list. You can go if you want, but we suggest that you stay and rest. And I was like, I'm not missing this experience. There was probably two real key moments that I really took away from that opening ceremony. The first one was watching all these great women in the sport. None of us knew who was going to light the flame. No one knew. Um, and then when we saw Kathy Freeman. You know, the fact that she was ind Indigenous made it extra special, but, it, you know, she was special regardless. Like, we just, she was, you know, here's this girl, Kathy Freeman, that was just so smiley and positive to every single athlete no matter the sport, you know. So we, when I saw her, I was, that was, I was really taken back by that. Um, and I felt quite nervous for her. I thought, how can Australia put that much pressure on one person? I actually thought that was a little bit unfair because ne never had I seen an athlete that hadn't won an Olympic gold medal before bestowed the honour of riding that quarter. You know, that's, that's an internationally prestigious thing to do. Um, and the second moment was actually when they were raising the flag. Celebrating the 27th Olympian of the modern era. I just took one big deep breath and went, man, I've spent the last, well, my whole life really, dreaming of being able to call myself an Olympian. And shit, man, I can finally do it. Um, but I must have had Don Talbot's voice in my head because um, I didn't just sort of think I was job done. I thought I've got a job to do in three days time. I've got a bloody job to do. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the pool deck, the teams for the men's four by 200 meter freestyle relay final. I want to talk about that night when you walk in, in front of 18,000 people and your uh, in the final squad uh, for the 4x200 metre, an event that you've set the world record in with a similar group of people, though notably not the exact same group of people on that particular night. Unfortunately, Grant Hackett was ill. And so Todd Pearson had stepped up and uh, was given an opportunity, uh, I'm sure that perhaps he wasn't expecting, leading into the Olympics to be a part of that finals team. What was it like to step out in front of everyone in that moment and to realise that now the business end uh, or as Don would put it, the, the real battle uh, was there before. Lane four, represented by Ian Ford, Michael Clinton, Todd Pearson, Bill Kirby, Australia. Visualise. Myself surfing in Margaret River. That's where I was. I was in North Point, and I just put my whole brain into just trying to get my heart rate down and to try and get the cortisols or the adrenaline just really down, so I could actually be ready to peak. Not in two minutes' time, but for me, it was like in four minutes' time. 
decisive lead Thorpe comes down and Clem goes in for Australia it's actually Thorpe that tapped me on the shoulder and said Bill are you going to get up and swim or what he actually shook me out of my meditative state and um, and then initially I was like holy crap I'm too relaxed and uh, then I, I looked up at the crowd and then I was just like boom I was on and I was riding I was riding the zone I felt uh, by the time I got on the block I, I felt like I was just 100% ready Pearson coming down to another West Australian, William Kirby, the 25-year-old from Perth, a member of the team that set the world record. In he goes, inspired. The Americans in now to drive it home now. His teammates are standing on the blocks, willing him on. Kirby looking strong, keeping his poise. Kirby, 20 metres to swim. The world record in sight. You can see the world record line at his feet. They've obliterated this record. Gold in Australia. Thorpe, Clint, Pierce and Kirby put it in the record books. A new world record for these Australians. They are celebrating. 18,000 people can appreciate the greatest team in the world. I remember being shocked when I watched it for the first time as a child, and I'm still shocked looking at it now that that level of excellence can be demonstrated at such a high level where you'd think that all of the winning is done in, in seconds or microseconds. And yet at that stage, it was just dominance. And I just want you to talk to me a little bit about, about that with the benefit of hindsight and looking back at it now, about what that was like and how that was even possible at that time. Yeah, look, it was really possible, I think, because you had a kid called Michael Klim that was just an animal that raised the bar up at the World Champs in 98. And then you had this kid called Grant Hackett, who is a fierce, fierce, hungry competitor that that saw what Klimmy was doing and just wanted to show him he could do better. And then you had this super freak, and he hated being called a freak. Thorpe, he hated it, you know, because being called a freak for him didn't really... Um, acknowledge how hard he worked, which is fair enough because he was a hard worker. He was a, not only was he physically amazing, he was a, an amazing trainer as well. So those guys dragged me up. Um, you know, Korsky was always around, they, but they they basically dragged 
all the Twitter freestyles in Australia up to up to um, a new level. And um, amazingly, you could have had Thorpey out of that relay and put Kowalski in, and we would have won. I'm pretty sure you could have put Thorpey out and Klimi out and brought in Kowalski and Matt Dunn, and we probably still would have won. Like it was, um, it was just, but it was really, I think, a whole lot of things just came into it, and. And, you know, those little lessons I learned along the way about how to be professional, to take myself from, you know, where I was at. I was at a 150 point. Now, training with those guys and living with those guys got me three seconds quicker. Got a nice round 147 twos. You know, that, that would have, I don't know, that probably would have been in pretty close to a medal, you know, an individual sort of freestyle race, um, if not a medal. And I think um, that just comes down to the characters that we were able to, to learn from, I think. You guys backed that up a year later with a new world record in 2001. That record stood uh, for six years after that point in time, which is an eternity in sport, of course, when technology and nutrition and training and everything is being optimised to the nth degree and, and uh, all talent is being pushed towards the one objective of being faster, better, stronger. That's an extraordinary testament, I suppose, to those bonds, isn't it? That it was able to last that long. And then when it was broken, it was broken by what someone who might be called another paradigm shifter in Michael Phelps and the team that was able to brought around him at that time from the United States. It must have been nice looking back even now to know that that, uh, that achievement was such a long-standing achievement and really did require uh, a generational break in technique and training before it was, people even came close to it. I think, um, I mean, a lot of things happened after after we finished. The, we had some amazing super suits that came out around that time. Um, and I looked at what they're, what they're doing now without these suits that they had, that you know, I think almost every world record got beaten with these super suits is what they, what they call them. Um, and now there's guys going out there with a pair of small bathers that are <laughs> just as fast and now faster, yeah. What was it that made you decide after 2001 uh, that it was time to step away and, and pursue uh, the sport from a different angle? Because I, I guess anyone could say that you'd, you'd achieved an extraordinary peak. There, there was three world records, Olympic gold medal, uh, historic team to swim with, um, but you had to make a decision at some point that you were going to move towards something else. And then what was it that made that moment? I had a, a, a back injury that kept flaring up. Um, I had sort of in the middle of, of my back and, and sort of lower down. Um, and that just was getting worse and worse and worse. And um, I felt like I was pushing myself and I got so much out of my body that I was scared that if I kept going for another year or two that I'd have lifelong injuries. And look, the second reason is um, I got married. Um, I wanted to buy our first home. Um, I wanted to stop being so selfish and spend time with my wife and um, let her go first. You know, there was times when she came to visit me in Canberra and I made her sleep on the floor because we had one bed in the room, you know, because my training was more important. I had to sleep, you know, and she was fantastic. She was 100% got it and she supported me the whole way and it was time for me to give back. So um, those two reasons were 
the key reasons why uh, 2001, and it was hard. Leaving the Institute of Sport in Canberra um, was probably one of the most emotional days I've had. Just the acknowledgement that that part of my life was over. And, and, and the brothers, you know, we've all seen each other cry. Um, we've all seen each other in pain and we've all helped each other through it. So that was, that was something that it's very hard to replicate in life, that, that real sense of brotherhood. When you decided that you were going to uh, build your own uh, coaching career um, and you're going to do that with your wife and you're going to try and give back to a new generation of, of swimmers, um, that must have been an exciting prospect for you, I imagine, after everything that you'd been through and everything that you'd achieved. The idea to say that now is my time to start taking some of these lessons and these attitudes and, and instilling them in a new generation. Um, that must have been a a very exciting adventure, I imagine, for you at that stage too, though. Yeah, it was super exciting. And I was super keen to get it perfect and to get it right. And I think within the first month of doing it, I realised how much of a novice I was at this new craft. Because I worked out really, really quickly that just because you can do it really well yourself doesn't mean you know how, you know, or the best way to get others to do it. You know, how do I explain it in a way that 10 year old can explain it, which is different to how I explain it to a 20 year old or, you know, to a five year old or whatever. So really fun. I had some great mentors that taught me how to pitch things to different age groups, how to break things down to get the best techniques. And, and that's still evolving. So I think that's one part that's really enjoyable about the technical part of swimming. Remind me, who was it again, that coach of yours that convinced you to, to go for the Sweden trip in 1997? What was his name? Bernie. Bernie. Malroy. Yeah. Did you ever get a chance to go back and have a chat to Bernie uh, after the end of your career and sort of sit down and talk to him about how he felt about it all? Because I imagine him looking at you in Sydney and in 2001 must have been feeling an especial pride um, at what you'd been able to accomplish given where you'd been when he gave you that push. Yeah. Um, look, I've talked to Bernie still to this day. I had dinner at his house two nights ago with his wife. Um, being a typical bloke, we don't get to that those emotional <laughs> points, you know. But um, sure. yeah. I think that's something I've thought. There's no doubt that's something I've thought. Um, you know, I left Bernie to move to Canberra. Um, I had to sit down in a room with him and and tell him that look, I've made the decision to move to Canberra, and um, and we both cried. He was angry and upset. I spent more time with him than I had my own, my, my own father. Um, and at times I called him dad, like our bond was, um, and still remains to be extremely, extremely strong. So, um, you know, when I catch up with him now, it's, I actually try hard not to talk about swimming. <laughs> But we, all, but we always get there, you know. Um, and, you know, he, he coached an athlete on every every year that he coached, he coached someone on the Australian team. You know, he's coached a lot of good athletes. And um, and there was a few of them that were, you know, that were much better athletes than what I was. But it's so easy to underestimate the power and the influence that that uh, that sort of coaching has on people growing up, right? Like it's the, it's the Bernie effect on you as a, a young boy getting into the sport for the first time. Um, and regardless of whether those people go on to the Olympics, those lessons, those attitudes, that humility, that success, that understanding of the team over the self, 
all of those things are critical in future life for all of us. And, and all of us come to it at different times and in different ways with different mentors. But I think it's easy to underestimate the effect when we don't see a gold medal attached to it five years down the track. Um, but that gold medal for someone might be a successful career and a successful family and a balance that allows them to do that in a way that helps other people. And, and that's equally valuable. Um, and uh, I'm very grateful um, that someone of your caliber and uh, your history with the sport has chosen to dedicate themselves to, uh, to the, the level of coaching that you have. Um, because I don't think any of us, I'm sure people listening would agree, can think back to high school without having a vivid recollection of those mentors that fundamentally changed us as people. Um, and I don't think that should ever be underestimated. You know, I, I love seeing kids excel. Um, you know, we have, one of our kids went to two Olympics from our school and uh, just recently in my time coaching, and I didn't coach him out, you know, out of school, uh, but certainly feel like I've had a part to um, infect people with the, with the love of swimming. Um, I get more joy, if not, um, well, at least as much joy as getting, you know, the kid that's come from a different country that hasn't had a swimming experience before, join the school, try swimming, enjoy it, and then make the school team in year 12 after trying for five or six years. You know, I, I really, um, I really enjoy that part. Have you ever, I have to ask, have you ever gotten the Don Talbot speech out and uh, five o'clock in the morning gone up to the training pool and said, that guy over there or that girl over there she's got two arms and two legs just like you is she training harder than you have you ever rolled it rolled it out on someone who you felt might need it i've definitely had a rerun of a lot of don talbot's talks and uh, bernie's talks yeah we've got to pull out all the stops when it comes to motivating the kids <laughs> at five in the morning well bill i am um, i'm uh, getting towards 10 o'clock here in brisbane um and uh i'm mm -hmm. uh, cognizant of your time as well and your early starts but I just want to say uh, how grateful I am for you taking a chance with us and for having a conversation with us today about these things and and it's um it's a real pleasure for me personally and I'm sure it's a real pleasure for those people listening too so thank you so much thank you Chris it's uh, it's been awesome cheers